you're listening to Driven by Design podcast. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Bracken Darrell. Bracken is the CEO of Logitech. Many of you will know Logitech because of their mice and keyboards, but you probably also have seen them for their speakers, their video conferencing, and also their gaming accessories. When Bracken took over the company five plus years ago, the company only had two product categories, which was the keyboards and mice. He's grown it, grown it dramatically. It's now worth 500% more from a market cap perspective than when he took over. So he's a darling of the share market. He knows how to grow and build and create products that people love. So please enjoy the conversation I've had with Bracken. Joining me is Bracken Darrell. You sounded pretty smooth. You've done this before. <laughs> I have done it before. I am Bracken Darrell. It's, nice, it's very nice to be here. So Bracken, we we met at the McKinsey De- Design Leaders Summit yep. here in Stockholm. Yeah. And you did a fantastic... Wait a minute. Before you say that, I was the least likely person to be invited here because I have no background in design. No, you're actually the most important person in the design industry. <laughs> and the reason for that is That's that you're the person who commissions the work. Okay. And if you don't have a vision and an imagination as the CEO of Logitech and say we need to actually create great customer experiences that are going to have meaning to them, then the rest of the design industry doesn't exist. I bet, I bet Da Vinci told the Medici's that too. Well, look, I used to, I used to be a credit director in Adland. Oh, no. And, and I used to go to people like you and say, sure, tell me your business problem. And, it's all coming clear okay, now. Okay, so now you know what I got. All right, I, we're both exposed. Okay, Not literally. So we're we're totally on the podcast. Nobody but, can see. But last night at the dinner before the event, yeah. you got up and gave a toast and you spoke about the third era of design. Yeah. And you're probably the, one of the most erudite and succinct people that I've heard talk about design in the last 10 years. You're good for my ego. I should, come, I should get on this podcast Look, regularly. <laughs> I, I'm glad that you're feeling good. So help me out. And you remember the nature of what you spoke about last night? Because <laughs> you talked I about can. three eras. And it yeah. sounded like you'd thought about this. It wasn't just off the no, cuff. No, it wasn't. So there are three. Uh, in my, under my definition, which is completely unofficial, uh, there are three stages of, of design, that, three eras of design that have happened. The first era of design was happened, you know, and, and still happening in companies today, which was design decorates the product at the end. They do the packaging, they make sure it looks good, and that's the extent of the expectation. The second era of design, which I'd say, you know, the best companies are in today, is they use they put the user in the middle, in the center of everything, the customer, and they build the product around the customer. And that, whether it's the experience itself of, of using the product, the experience of literally opening the product, all that is the second generation of design, second era of design, as you put it. The third era of design was, uh, is what I'm excited about, which is keep doing that second, keep doing it better and better and better, building a better and better experience for your customers. But then take the power of design and bring it into everything in a company. Everything in, in the in the the way you run your board meetings, since this is a podcast about that, in the way you close your books, how fast you close your books, who experiences the the, the information that comes out of that, it's literally touching every employee, every every supplier, everybody. In the in the in the third era of design, it will be a constant reinvention, constant redesign process for everything. And look, I 100% agree with you as the most proven, reliable, and effective method to accelerate transformation, yep. designs that it's the bomb. I haven't seen anything close. The only thing I'd actually suggest is... oh here's the challenge. 
I think there was actually an era before design was brought in to go and make products look nice, which goes back to the very um, the craft-based design before the 1950s. Yeah. So, so I, I think it's fair. I, I think there might be four stages, the, and you've uh, and you've referred what, to it as three, but there, there's point zero point five. Or yeah. So, yeah. so if we can settle on design right. being a, in the I'm fourth in. age, then we're best friends. Okay. So it's hands up. We're friends okay. there. But but I think as far as the industrialization of design, you're very yeah. right that there was this period which was very much end stage. Yeah. Now it's actually the origin about the customer experience and the third stage that you were talking about in that modern era is actually how does it actually become holistic across the organisation. Now, your background is that you've worked in a bunch of behemoth organisations before you got to Logitech. And you've obviously found out that being design-led or driven by design is a path that's worthwhile for you to pursue. Where was the origin of that? Well, I um, I would say, honestly, the origin of, of finding the design is the same. I started the same place that everybody listening to this podcast did, and you did too, which is, you know, when you're a kid, you grow up, uh, you, you're born a designer, and it's coached right out of you by the first grade. Second grade, third grade, you coach it right into submission. So that by the time you're in the, the, the fourth grade, you're learning to follow all the rules. You know, design is a has process, but it's about rebellion. It's about fighting the system. The first years of your life, you're lo- the first years of your education, you're learning the system. So, I would say we're we were all born designers, and we and we were, it's coached out of us while we're in school. And then, if we're lucky, we find our way back into it. So, I loved art. I you know I, I always liked art, but then I fell in love with it later, and I I found my way somewhere along this line to. Uh, I'm going to be a little long winded, so you'll be patient with me. I. I, when I was in business school, I saw this presentation on marketing and brand management. I was like, holy shit, this is it. Brand management, marketing sits at the center of a company and it really everything is marketing. Everything is about creating a product and experience and bring it. Then I went to work in companies where I, I, I learned how to market the, the official way and I'm I'm showing the quotation there are marks. Quotation here. marks on the official, yeah. And uh, and what I discovered along the way that that I hated that. That that what what I learned was how to make good claims, and how to support those claims legally, and how to advertise those claims publicly, but not how to create create amazing experience. And and, and there was a there's an experience gap there, isn't it? Because you were expectation setting, yeah. but delivery wasn't of that experience wasn't something that was guaranteed. Well, no matter whether we guaranteed or whether we delivered the experience we were claiming or not. The bigger question was, are we delivering really imp- big improvements in experience? I mean, really significant improvements. So I didn't even – I just digested that and then I left and went to the next big company and the next big company. And somewhere along the line, I landed at Braun. Braun, the shavers and epilators. And there's a very famous designer named Dieter Rams, And he has 10 principles of design that a lot of your listeners will know very well. And, yeah, I got to know him and I'm a huge fan of that. But what I learned in that process was, you know what? I need to take the word marketing – I apologize to all you marketers who are out there. There are probably one or two on this podcast. And forget it. And replace it with design. Because design is what marketing, what I thought marketing was, which is creating under constraints with the user in the center. And if you, if you, everything I thought marketing was, it's really design. So design is about creating experience and then communicating that experience. And that's an experience. So that's where I really kind of discovered that, God, this is what I really, really want to do. So when I was at Braun, 
We were acquired by P&G. I left and I found my way eventually to Logitech. And I said, I, I told the board of Logitech, I want to create a design company. And, and Logitech was already really good at, at innovation, but I really want to create a design company. So it's interesting there because one of the things that we discuss throughout the podcast series is that we're in an era where the cost to convince is greater than the cost to solve. And, I love that. And so you can use it's that. Great go, right? Because if, if, I, if I go think of advertising and marketing is the convince industry. No wonder we get along so well. And the convince industry then became the serve industry, but now it's become the solve industry. And it's interesting if I reflect on some of the people who have been in this series, the likes of McCann. McCann took a massive hit when Microsoft decided that they actually would be design-driven and that they would actually solve their customers' needs, reduce their marketing budget by two-thirds, and become this behemoth, which has skyrocketed through the trillion-dollar valuation and isn't slowing down. Nope. And Microsoft's found out that it's actually much cheaper to solve than it is to convince. That's an interesting point of view. And, and so, so I think if we, in the more that we actually socialise the idea that solving is cheaper than convincing, because solve actually winds up where people go to the word-of-mouth marketing for you. And today, every marketer wants to go get virality and word-of-mouth marketing. Solve something and you're going to get that. But if you don't solve it, and I think that was what was so great about Braun, the DRAM solved people's needs in a very elegant and graceful way. But fundamentally, the products that he created solved the human need and they also look fantastic. And so if I go back to, you know, somebody like Patricia Seibold in 98 where she turned around and she did customer.com, she talked about the idea of satisfaction being that when experience is greater than expectation. Yeah, that's all key. Satisfaction. Delight. And, and so you've got that really interesting and, – and you can't be twice satisfied. You're either satisfied or you're not. Yep. And so there's a whole new range of product management skills that people have, which is are we satisfying our customers today? Will we satisfy them in six months' time? Will we satisfy them in 12 months' time? And so there's a stage release of a product roadmap out there, which no doubt your team's got, because you, I don't know, how many products do you have currently? We have 27 different categories. 27 categories, which is phenomenal. You must have massive teams just trying to go work out what's that Ta- next Small level. teams. Small, small teams. teams? We're scaling small. Okay. But you mentioned that last night to me as well, that the idea of the innovation comes out of small teams, not out of large teams. Yeah. yeah. I, I, everything you said, it really resonates with me. I, I think the, the power of um, – first of all, let's talk about this concept of satisfaction. I, I don't like the word satisfaction because it sounds dull. You know, what you want to do, if you can, is – the principle that, that Alistair, my head of design, and I have is we want somebody to love what we do. To love the product or the experience, not to like it. We're not looking for, you know, on a scale of one to five or four. We're looking for somebody who loves it. Even if that somebody who loves it is is the narrowest target you could possibly find. If we have somebody who loves it, that's the right starting point. Yeah, because because at the end of the day, you know, you're, we, companies aren't built on uh, satisfying needs. They're built on people loving their their brands, you know, and it's true that trust can be built on on, on continuous satisfaction, but it really helps if people love you. So you want, not everybody will love you, but if you have a few people who love you, then a lot of people will like you. So that's the starting point. In terms of innovation, I, 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 you know, I spent my whole career at big companies and you know, really good big companies, and I've come to the conclusion, don't tell anybody, 
the big companies don't do very much well except scale. And they're very good at the M&A process of acquiring innovation and, and scaling that. That's scale. So, so scale is their master stroke and scale is super powerful. And that's why big companies continue to grow and do well. What big companies are really trying to do beyond scale is, is figure out, and they don't explicitly say it this way, they don't even necessarily think about it this way, is figure out how to operate like really small, good companies, which is where innovation really happens. So, so innovation happens around a kitchen table with five people. And really, innovation happens with you and me, with two people. And so even if you have a team of five people, when you have, when you have a team of two people, how many relationships do you have? One. When you have a team of, add one person to it, how, what happens to the number of relationships? It triples. Add two people, now you go from three to five, you go, it, it more than triples. So the complexity skyrockets. That's why small teams work. Innovation is always happening at the pair level. You know, if, if there are three of us here and they're not, it's just you and me. If there's one more person here, we can't have a conversation. It's not like the three of us are having a conversation, two of us are having a conversation, somebody's listening. That's the way and, it works. And it's interesting because we also do panel versions of, of the podcast. Yeah. And there's a magical number, which is four people on a panel. Huh. Because if you have three people on a panel, then there's two people who feel that they're listening. Yep. If you have... That's interesting. Uh, it, it, and that. so I know in doing them that there's this permission idea that comes in when it's four people, yeah. where everyone's tolerant. If it's three, two people think that they're not being heard enough. Yeah. If, there's, uh, if you're going to have you know, only um, two guests then one of them feels the other one's been more dominant. And so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, funny. It, it, it's been really interesting learning. That's really interesting. How do you, what's the optimal size for a panel? Yeah. And then what will also happen is that then there's the cross-referencing of multiple you know, uh, connections and collisions right. that happen there. Okay. But you're 100% right that it often comes down to a couple of people who are working on something and then it needs to be tested. Yeah. And so I'm interested with, because you're Logitech making devices, that testing part, you know, that's a big expense. Or do you go through the testing stage when you're still at relatively lo-fi prototypes or concepts? Uh, we're super early. We're, we're testing. If you call it testing in quotation marks, we're constantly trying to get with users as fast as possible, as early as possible. The cool thing is that most of the things that we work on is, you know, we're the user too, so you can test it pretty quickly uh, under that definition of testing. You know, I think I think the key to to everything is to everything that I do is we want to be super innovative. We want to do it in a portfolio approach. We want to do more and more things. And so that means we need to risk manage our bets. And so people will tell you, focus, focus, focus. Do, you know, focus on one or two things. And we do focus on one or two things. But then on top of that, we add, you know, five to 15 more things, which are new categories we're in development on. Very small teams. Very small teams working only on that thing, rewarded only on that thing trying to figure out how to get it to market. They're usually a secret, so they're doing it quietly. And then they're, once, they, once they get a point where they've got a, a basic prototype, which can take two weeks to a month, they put it in front of people, they put it in front of me, put it in front of Alistair, our head of design. It's a continuous process of, of go, 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 as fast as you can. Try to get learning, try to get learning, try to get learning. Don't worry about failing. There's no such thing. It's about learning. And then eventually, when you get to the point where you go, man, I really have something. And then, then you start to scale it. And, and try to do it on a broader scale. So this is the way we, we're trying to innovate. And uh, we call it trees, plants, and seeds. Okay. So tell me about the trees, plants, and seeds. Well, this, this came from when I first came to the company. You know, we had this big tree, which was our PC peripherals business. Healthy, beautiful, 
not going to grow anymore, and so and and over resourced. We took the 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 resources out of that seventy five percent of them. We put it into new businesses that we went in right away. Called we called them plants, Bluetooth speakers, tablet accessories, uh, video conferencing equipment. We went in there right away, and then we started funding these other new things with the same other seventy five percent of resources. We called them seeds, and the seeds were like like startups in, internally, and so we started. Just we'd get a, a a person or two, and we'd say, "Is this an area you're interested in?" Yes, I am. Okay, go try to figure out how to make a business out of this. And then I'd meet with them every two weeks or three weeks. We 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 had a seed program. There were secret projects, and then they they'd quickly try to get a it rapidly prototype. We try to get a so we boom 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 boom, and that's what, and we've been doing that ever since. Okay, so if I if I if I try to expand that out a bit. The trees are harvesting for you. There's fruit that comes off them, so you yeah. you know you can bank that. Yeah. The plants need a bit of nurturing, but a they, lot of nurturing. But they're going to still come around, and you'll be yeah. able to earn. But the seeds uh, must be a very low yield. But if you get one of them right, That's it right. turns into a fantastic tree. Yeah, and and the, and the risk you have with seeds there are a couple of risks. One is, as you said, they're they're low yield, so we we have to protect them. We not only have to protect them from the real world, so we do them on small scales and, and let them learn, learn, learn. We also have to protect them from the, the plants and the trees. So I don't report those people into those other business leaders because while they might be excited in the beginning, sooner or later, the economic reality of, oh, I've got to resource my big business and it's going to come at the expense of these things. Or I'm running a process and it's pissing off. Uh, your, your little seed process is pissing off my big business. So what do we do? We I uh, have a rule, which is if a seed is running a process and they and they look at the process we use for the the regular business and they say, God, this looks really slow and frustrating. And then you know what? You write it, write me an email, tell me what the new process ought to be, copy the person in charge of the process, and if they don't answer in twenty four hours, that's the new process. Interesting. So I got of, that from Steve Blank, if you know who he is. Yeah. So so a couple of weeks ago I was in London at uh, the London Design Festival. And I caught up with the guys from Teenage Engineering. Really smart Swedish. Yeah, you probably know the guys, yeah? So, <laughs> listeners, if you don't know them, take a look at Teenage Engineering. They, they create synthesizers and drum machines or sequences that are out of this world from a creation perspective. For basically, for, for 2,000 pounds or 2,000 US dollars, you have a complete audio suite that can turn you into one of the greatest musicians. And and what's interesting for them is their challenge is that they produce in such small volumes that they they find it difficult to go get continuous supply of componentry. Welcome to the hardware business. Exactly. So for I suppose for yourselves, there's there's this thing where factories want to sell you twenty million of something. They don't want to make twenty thousand. We're in a really luxurious spot, you know. We're because we're a hard. We we grew up a hardware company. Now we're doing software and services and everything else. But we grew up in a hardware business. So, so I've been meeting with uh, founders of hardware companies for as long as I've been in this job, which is almost eight years. I've probably met five thousand different founders, and I see the pattern. And the pattern's really simple. When the business takes off, it's great, you know, because everybody is willing to help you and fund you. And then when it just when the trajectory changes, I don't mean it's declining. I mean it just goes from a hundred percent growth to forty or forty percent growth to fifteen, which is still good, by the way. Uh, suddenly there's a crisis because you've now got an excess of components 
relative to that future growth state. You've got an excess of supply in the in the channel that sells to your retailer retailers. You've just got a lot. And so now you go back and say, hey, Mr. Venture Capitalist or Ms. Venture Capitalist, I need more money. And they say, you know, we liked you when you were like growing at that rate, but this rate, I don't really want to fund your, your working capital, your inventory. Go ask somebody else. There's nobody else. So you go bankrupt or you sell your company for a So hardware is really, really hard. It's not really hard because it's hard to create a product. You and I could do that in almost anything we do. You could probably create a better product than we do today. But look out. I'm coming back at you. And so so this is the problem with hardware. This is why people say hardware is very hard. It is super hard from a working capital standpoint. Now, you mentioned your head of design, Alistair. Yeah. Alistair's ex- we should have the chair is empty. We there is an empty chair in the yeah. room, listeners. But uh, I think Alistair's here at the after party from the McKinsey yeah, event, enjoying doing, himself. Yeah. Alistair's ex Nokia. Yep. In some ways, what a great thing that Nokia Wonderful. stopped because then you got a great resource. Exactly. Thank you, Nokia. But I was I was really fascinated at the time that that Nokia had decided that they would or that they wanted to go make very inexpensive phones. And they went and they managed to go from a seven-stage finishing process to off-tool finished, pro- uh, finished product similar to Lego. Yeah. Now, listeners, if that's gobbledygook for you, let's unpack that a little bit. That means that the mobile phone that you have, it comes off the injection molder and it was taking seven different stages before it was acceptable for you to have as a phone. And that would have been a finishing stage. It would have been a coating and uh, and patching stage. There would have been a couple of coats of paint that went on it. Two different kinds of plastics that went into exactly. it. Exactly. Two different. And then what Nokia had managed to do was they managed to get the mobile phone down to a 20, 20 US dollar phone. Amazing. And the only way they could do that was by having an off-tool finished case. Yeah. They just finished doing that and the company disappeared. And I go look at as far as the craft and the mastery to be able to get to that level of finished product is awesome. But they also knew that they were going to produce millions upon millions and therefore they could invest in the tools. Similar to Lego. Lego can have fantastic off-tool products because they know that they're going to produce billions of them. At the scale that Logitech's working, do you get the scale that you can actually afford that level of tooling? Because that, that, that is mind-blowingly accurate tooling. We're, we're super into craftsmanship, and, and we, we love uh, beautiful, elegant products. But, and I apologize for kind of changing the direction of your question, but I think the biggest risk you have is what you just described, which is your own success. If you've got, in our case, say seven years of, I mean, our, our stock's gone up 650%. Our growth has gone from, we've declined two years in a row, then we've steadily grown and grown and grown and grown. Our profit's gone from negative 220 million this year. We should do 375 to 385. And our gross margins have gone way up, which is the most important number on any profit and loss statement for you listeners out there. The biggest risk you have is that at that point, you, you, you live on the scale. You need the scale. It's a must. You can't afford not to have the scale. You, 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 you're, you're, you have so many successes under your belt that you don't want to have a failure. That's the biggest risk that any company has. Nokia had it. Apple has it. We have it. So you've got to find a way inside to, uh, to divorce yourself from the past and, and, and be a newcomer and find your way to being new again and, and with, with only the risk that, you know what, I'm launching something right now 
and I want it to be successful. And if it's not, I've got to move on to the next thing. And that's really where we're, what I'm fixated on personally, is constantly trying to stay new and reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. Yes, you can do seven injection molded things. You can get so caught up in your details and specs and, and how do I do something you know, better than what I did last time. But the most important thing is staying new and being close to customers and trying to create. Now I know that uh, Alessa, who who are making you know, yeah, I know him well. beautifully finished um, uh, designer Gorgeous. products. Now Alessa have a scoring system for all of the design projects come through, and they know for every single digit that gets added to the score, it's a tenfold increase in the quantity of that of that product that's going to be out there, which gives the scale thing. Obviously, they're after products that are selling millions or tens of millions. Yeah. They really don't want something that tells sells 10,000. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the issues is that sometimes products sound really interesting, but they don't fly. Yeah. When do you go and actually do version two of something that didn't get that market success, and when do you cut it? I heard Jeff Bezos say this one time, and I, I could so relate to it that I, I'm, I would be uh, – shy not to quote him because he said it better than I ever would. You know, when you're working on new things or seed projects, you, you know, usually inside a company, whether it's a really small company or a really large one or something in between like us, um, you have a, you have, you have to have passionate advocates for the new thing because it's fighting the, it's fighting against gravity, which is all the existing business. It's got to escape that gravity and become a business on its own. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes Gen 1 didn't work so well. And you can explain it. Gen 2 didn't work so well. You can kind of explain that. And you've pivoted and pivoted, and now you're in Gen 3 or a pivot number 3, whatever it is. It, you don't quit on this until the last passionate advocate folds, you know, puts the cards on the table says, I'm done. And usually the last passionate advocate is me. And I heard Jeff Bezos said then, he said, usually it's me. And I get that. Sometimes it's not me. Sometimes it's Alistair. He just says, you know, I really believe in this. And I trust him. And if he believes in it, I'd, I'm, I'm with him, you know. So I think you just, you just, you have to go until your intuition says it's over. And I think if And we, then risk manage it, by the way, so that you're not, it can't kill you. Yeah. And, it, and if we go have a look at some of the history of mobile devices, we look at a successful business like Palm Pilot. Yeah. But didn't scale, had an end of life phase. Yeah. We had at the same time that the Apple Newton was out, mm -hmm. we have the Windows smartphone that didn't mm -hmm. get there. But all of them started off with this very early stage innovation group at General Magic. Hmm. And there's a documentary that's coming out very soon. I hadn't heard that. That's and the General Magic story is basically, you can, you can look at all of the people who were working at General Magic and find them working at Apple or find them working at, at Google in the Android. I believe that. And, and so one, one of the interesting things about those people who have worked on the earlier versions is that they stay in the industry. Yeah. And they wind up somewhere else. In your case, you've got Alistair. The company quits on them. Yeah. The, the original well, company quit on them. The equity holders quit yeah. on them. Yeah. Well, careful. That's, that's a cop-out because okay. the, uh, you can't blame the equity holders. The, the management team quit on okay. them. Okay. Good pickup there. So the management team is, uh, is then not being able to get something to work. But if you look at the Newton, if Apple hadn't have actually had the Newton, they wouldn't have got to the, the iPad and the Absolutely. iPhone. And so 
I was impressed this week where we saw that Microsoft, who have really been, yeah, you know, they've struggled with some with some hardware products. They're back, but they're back. They have their, you know. If you go look, Apple is sleeping at the moment and Microsoft with their Surface release this week is fantastic. They've got their mojo back. They've got a great design team there and they're innovating and they're pushing the boundaries for personal productivity and personal um, uh, devices, which is magnificent because we need to have somebody who's at the front of the pack. And it's a little bit like um, football teams that, you know, Different years, different people at the front of the pack, but it's great to go see that there's still people pushing those boundaries. Well, I'm I'm uh, probably in a slightly different camp than you. I think it's really easy to uh, to to dismiss or, or criticize Apple, but I think Apple's. If you look at what Apple's really done, it's been pretty amazing. You can you can say, well, but you know, I mean, look at the look at the um, AirPods. I mean, my God, it, it's unbelievable what they've done. They're they're now like they're fifty percent, sixty percent of the total category. Unbelievable. The watch, which you know, whether the AirPods were completely dismissed in the beginning. I mean, it's very easy to dismiss, but you know, I think if you look at what Apple's done, it's pretty amazing. I also think I agree with you. If you look at what Microsoft's doing, it's also really amazing. So I think there's there's great stuff happening all over. Going back to your original comment, I think people often we, myself included, and I'm very wary of this, so I try not to do it often quit on things too early. The, the Nespresso story is legendary, but that thing went 10 years before it did anything. Now Nespresso is a, I don't know what it is, probably an eight or $10 billion business. You know, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, sometimes things take on right away, take off right away. Sometimes they just take time. And sometimes you, you're in the second and third generation and everybody writes off the first one as, oh, that was a failure, that Newton was a failure. But the thing that came, you know, five years later because the Newton is a success. So, you know, John Scully is also a very good guy, very smart man, and and I I think you know when you look back, if it, whoever writes the history always gets the the winners tell the story, but but I think when you look back on the history of consumer electronics, there are lots of instances where you know thank God somebody stuck with something long enough. And you know if I go back to your experience at Braun, yeah, there's a bunch of iconic products that that came out from DataRams. Yeah, I'd really like somebody to go do the. The things Dita made that didn't quite make it, because yeah. we've all got that. You know, we all sure. had. You you can be Jagger and Richards, but you had a couple of songs that were very dodgy. <laughs> you know? So so I think you know we we've got to give confidence to people that not everything flies. Yeah. But you do need to have the courage and the temerity to just keep pushing on. And the humility. Exactly. The humility. you know I I I, I there, if there were two words. Two words. Okay, every li- everybody who's still listening and hasn't quit on us yet. Absolutely. There are two words that every single person listening here should take out of their vocabulary forever and replace with uh, one word, which is learning. And those two words are failure and success. They're just judgments put on history. The only thing that really matters in your life is what did you learn from what you did? Don't worry about whether somebody else says it's successful or somebody else says it's a failure. Don't do the same stupid things over and over again if you can avoid it. But if you can take those two words out and just learn from everything you do, every new product you launch, every new product you don't launch, every sprint you take, everything, you'll be better off. And and I, I feel so strongly about that. Bracken, I feel so humbled to actually go get half an hour of your time. I'm sure the listeners are as well. Thank you. You've well, been it's really been open. a pleasure. It's really an honor to meet you, and I've really enjoyed it. Look, I'm sure this is the first of many conversations. I look forward to our next one. Thank you so much.